welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler, and today we're going to talk about... What's the upcoming season of Stoicism? So every year in the month of October, and now it's actually going into November, uh, so you can identify it with fall, there's a lot of activity around modern Stoicism. We have a big uh, conference called Stoicon that, that happens every year. This time, of course, it's virtually because uh, COVID. And there's a one-week class that thousands of people take called Stoic Week. It was originally called Live Like a Stoic. And, and people do exactly that. And then there's all sorts of other cool events happening. And what's, what's really great about this this year is that so many of these events, almost all of them actually, the only one that's, that's not virtual is uh, one in Russia that <laughs> I guess they're less concerned about COVID than, than everybody else in the world. But for the most part, all of these events are virtual. So even if they're staged in Australia or, you know, like ours is here in Milwaukee, anybody anywhere in the world could participate them, in them, provided, I guess, that, that they have the right time zone so they're not, you know, in the middle of the night or something like that. But even even night owls could get in on it. So we have a, this this big season coming up and Dan and I thought we would revisit stoicism since the episode that we devoted to it, we didn't get through everything that we we wanted to. And there has also been a recent development in the the news that we're going to talk about. Um, involving an unemployment or rather a firing claim in a foreign country and somebody using stoicism as what would you call it like a um, an excuse a a cover for doing some rather unstoic activities <laughs> a shield yeah that's it that's yeah. exactly it yeah mm-hmm. so I don't think stoicism was quite meant to be used that way but we'll, we'll get to that so right you know one of the things that i'm going to be doing a talk about later on in this season is whether it's okay for a stoic to get excited about stoic week because in the past i've i've posted that you know i'm i'm very i'm very much looking forward to it i'm excited about stoic week or stoicon and then i would have some people criticizing me saying it's it's not stoic to be too excited about anything and, you know, I, I've got some responses for that, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what, what you think about that. Is it is it that, that the wrong thing to do? Is that a misunderstanding of what stoicism would entail to, to get excited about something? Well, I guess you'd go to the, one of the pro-social emotions of the wish, and that, you know, you're wishing for things that have a, like, a high probability of happening, that, you know, uh, especially that are... You know, under your control to a certain extent um, and since you're the one that's organizing this and you put all the, the wheels in motion and there's so many of them going forward that the probability that at least one of these events will go on is <laughs> <laughs> yeah um is is rather high and so you know as long as you're not desiring them to happen that you desire what happens to happen um you can still have these goals and to uh, it is rational to think that these things will happen. Uh, these are not outside of the norm things. Yeah, what we translate as wish, bulesis in, in Greek, it can be translated also as rational desire. So it's desiring things, but in a way that actually makes sense rather than 
you know, so let's take Stoicon, for example. In the past, it was this big face-to-face uh, -face conference, and you'd have all these big speakers who are well-known in the Stoic community. That's why it's a con in the first place, just like, you know, any other thing, whether it's comic books or cars or, you know, I guess sports. So, you know, you got these speakers, and you get to meet them, and you get to meet other people who are interested in what you're interested in, and you go to workshops, and, you know, there, there's going to be some hassles, of of course, there'll be crowds and maybe there'll be some people there who are kind of disagreeable. There always are. Um, and, you know, maybe, you know, if you have to fly, like I, I went to Stoicons in Toronto, in uh, New York and in London. And I, I chose not to go to Greece because I was like, that's going to be way too much hassle for me <laughs> you know, to, to try to get there during the, the school year. Uh, so I didn't go to last year's. Um, but, you know, when anytime that you're like stepping on a plane's uh you're walking through that that hallway you know getting onto the plane mm -hmm. you know things can get screwed up and probably will get screwed up something's going to go wrong right so it's not rational to expect everything to conform to your desires but you could still say oh man i'm going to get to meet so and so i'm going to get to talk to this person whose book i read i'm going to hear a really great discussion about this with this panel um I think that's something that a person can look forward to. And, you know, and if it doesn't turn out that well, like let's say the speaker has laryngitis and they, they bring in somebody else instead or they, they cancel that part of the event, well, you know, that's where the what we call the reserve clause comes in, right? Right. So we should, we should talk uh, about that. The reserve clause is, you know, this is something you see in, I guess, a number of philosophies as, as well as religions. You know, um, in Christianity, you'll often hear the, the saying, God willing. Um, and the reserve clause within Stoicism is uh, fate willing. So and what does that mean, though? What's the difference between fate and God? Is is there a difference there? <laughs> uh, well, I guess it depends on the, your, your person that you're asking. Okay. If you're, if you're a theist, then especially if you're of a certain Abrahamic faith, then, you know, there is a plan. And so I guess God and fate would be directly intertwined. If you go by, like, the ancient Stoics, they, they refer to nature and uh, the universe and Zeus and God um, as all kind of interchangeably. And so... Um, nature is, is to a certain extent fate and that you know that is the way that things will happen yeah actually that's that's a good launching point for bringing up something so when we think about religions uh and this case that we're going to talk about does touch on stoicism viewed as something almost like a, a religion um we think about like prayer and rituals and stuff like that and and stoicism doesn't have that so if you're getting on the plane and suddenly um you know you're in the air there's a big jolt some turbulence and you look out the window and like the engine's on fire um and you're like oh that's that's bad you know, right <laughs> goose flew yeah. into it or something like that um maybe a christian would 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 start praying at that point oh you know wait actually, i need to hold up okay is it bad if if uh, a goose flies into the um the engine, engine? well it's i mean from a stoic perspective you're saying right it, i mean yes it we is, were talking about stoic it's certainly here. bad for the plane <laughs> That's really oh, yeah. bad for the goose. <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 the Stoics don't say that, that death is 
totally, you know, indifferent, right? Uh, right. Ideally, you want you want people not to die if you. But you shouldn't be living in fear of death. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the Stoic, you know, wouldn't start praying because. Zeus isn't going to change anything. Zeus is sort of like already made it clear what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, by, yeah. by... So like <laughs> either there's enough engines still on the plane that yeah. you'll eventually land. And, and, and the pilots can, can, can do it, right? Right. You know, like hopefully Sully's in there, right? And um, uh, Or it's not. And um, unless you have some like control over the plane, unless you're the pilot here, um, or you can somehow do something to materially change the uh, events that are happening. Yeah. Well, then just kind of you know amor fate, you know love fate. You know that's death. that's actually. I mean, we're talking about a very literal thing, but that's actually a great <laughs> metaphor. You're along for the ride on so much, right? If you're not the pilot or the co-pilot, or somebody who actually has a pilot's license and training, and and maybe you know can step in and do something you're not you're not going to determine what happens with that plane. You can decide, you know, when the oxygen mask comes down to like panic or not or put on your mask calmly, but that's about it. <laughs> so right? how many uh, pounds of or newton pounds of uh, force do you want to exert on that like hand rest as you're going down? Yeah, I suppose that's that's within your power as well, right? I I don't, I don't yeah, I don't really know um, what else. I mean, you could decide to call the stewardess or the uh, flight attendant, flight attendant, yeah, over and say, "Can I have uh, one more drink, please?" You know, that that might be something people would do, or uh, yeah. Um, but this, I mean, so the, these are these are some good examples of differences between theistic and then stoic ideas about things. There's you know, Epictetus actually says, hey, you can go do these rituals of divination if you want to, but you probably should avoid it and only do it if you like totally can't figure it out on your own. It's almost like the today's thing where people email you or, or have comments and they ask you questions and you're like, man, you can Google that. You know, why don't you do some work on your own and figure it out, right? Uh, it's, yeah. it's sort of like the ancient, the, the Stoic gods are, are saying, you, you need to figure this out on your own people. You're rational. We gave you uh, a rational mind. It wasn't just for you to put aside and then constantly bug us with your questions. It reminds me of, I believe it's Chrysippus who talks about the idea of fate and the way that we deal with fate in the... Uh, the vignette of a a dog tied to the back of a <laughs> wagon. Now this and the, this is probably not going to be all that appealing to the listeners, <laughs> I imagine. Well, it's it's kind of like fate in this context is the wagon. It's going forward, and you are the dog, and you can either pull against your leash and fight, and you know curse at fate all you want and get the dragged along keep, <laughs> yeah or, or you can kind of go with it and so that's this this kind of central idea of like what is under your control yeah um, uh, a lot of times it's the way that you are looking at the world and not your ability to actually change you know something that and it may have been a part of that original idea because we don't we don't have like chrysippus's writings um, if you think about it, if if you are that dog and you're running alongside the wagon where it's going, now you actually have some play, 
You could like go this way or that way up to how far the leash is. Whereas if you're just allowing yourself to be dragged, well, you're at the end of the leash and you're going wherever the wagon goes and you're not going to be able to have any, any real scope for things, you know. I guess I'd always kind of added that on. Maybe that was just me reading into it. But yeah, I, I'd absolutely agree with the, the idea that there is, you know, there is room to play with the leash and the, the amount that you're given. Yeah. That's kind of a, that makes it a little bit more of an attractive prospect then. Maybe it's kind of like the idea that we're all on this earth and we can go and do anything that we want on this earth, but that earth is going to still rotate around the sun yeah. you know, until we're all dead. And we have lots of play and we can do lots of really cool things, but there's, almost nothing that we're ever going to do to change the you know the vast order of things yeah yeah and i think too another thing you can say about that is there's there's certain constants of human nature that you you can't i mean you can try to push against them but they're always going to come back at you and you can't really avoid them so you know like people think that they can do bad things and it's just this once and it's not really going to have any lasting effects in the world and it's not actually going to like affect their character but that's not the way things were made you know and you might be able to get away with something once and you're lucky that it doesn't have a bad effect but but sooner or later you do bad things it's going to lead to to bad effects and it's going to affect you as a, a person as well and likewise you know doing good things um, and it's not just that the bad effects are external bad effects it's not just like the legal system or someone's going to come back and like try yeah. to exact some revenge but it's also it's changing your character and the, the decisions that you make because you, know, you are kind of what you repeatedly do right yeah i think it, this is um something the stoics were very attuned to the force of habit in producing sort of reliably good or bad actions and not just actions but ways of reading the situation, ways of motivating ourselves, ways of prioritizing. Um, that's, that's a really important point. Although, I mean, you, you can find that in most virtue ethics, I, I'd say, right? Yeah. Uh, not, not only just habits, but also reviewing those habits to, you know, review your day or your week and try to think back because a lot of times it's, you know, you're in the moment and because we already have a number of habits that are built in from our upbringing yeah. that those things uh, have to kind of be unlearned if we find them to be bad. And a lot of times we do them unconsciously. Yeah. So that's, that's a good point. And now you're bringing that out of stoicism, right? That's, that's a stoic practice. That's kind of basic. Uh, this mm -hmm. review at, at certain times of the day, you know, well, it's actually a, like the the review that Marcus Aurelius uses is actually cribbed from the Pythagoreans. That's right, right. It goes yeah. way back further than that. So yeah, so that's the um, what have I done well? What have I failed at? What could I do better? Yeah, that's that's often quite helpful to do as a practice. And at first, like most things, it feels weird and. You don't, you don't really want to do it, even though you, you've told yourself that it would be a good thing for you to do. But after a while, it becomes, um, it becomes your, your normal routine, right? Part of your, your how you finish up the day. Yeah, and it's, it's really, like, if you have trouble sleeping, sometimes it's just those thoughts 
running through your head and getting them down on paper are useful. And one of the, the things that usually runs through people's heads are them ruminating about the, the actions and the interactions that they have with other people in the world that day. Yeah. I think it's something that probably keeps a lot of people up at night too, is like what they didn't do or what they forgot to do. Um, so, how... so that's why I also write in my journal all the things that I want to do tomorrow so that one, I don't forget them. And two, um, that I don't have to think about what I'm doing the next day. Yeah. You externalize or you get it out of your head, so to speak. Right. Right. So, yeah, the, you know, we've already talked about a couple different important Stoic practices just in this uh, little segment here then. Mm-hmm. Um, do we want to hit on, on any, any other one in particular? Or? Um, I know we saved th- one for the end, right? Yeah, I, I think we should talk uh, about the idea of being pro-social within Stoicism. Yeah, this is, this is something that I would say... You, we can't stress enough because there's so many misunderstandings about this, particularly just coming from the word stoic with like a lowercase s that people use today to describe somebody who's unattached, unemotional, you know, um, not not engaged with other people, withdrawing from everybody else. And that's that's just not stoicism, it was, you know, as a philosophy, it's stoicism with a capital S at all. Right. Mm-hmm. It looks like you, you're getting a, a, a passage ready. You got something? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, so this is from Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. It's my favorite passage from the book, book two, first section. And halfway oh. through it goes, you know, um, nor can I be, uh, nor can I feel angry at my relative or hate him. These people that he has to deal with that are unhelpful and annoying. <laughs> to say um, the least. <laughs> Um, but we were born to work together like two feet, hands and eyes, like the two rows of teeth, upper and lower. To obstruct each other is unnatural. To feel anger at someone, to turn your back on him, these are obstructions. Now, what does that mean for, for the, the listener, obstructions? Uh, they're obstructions to uh, one's own well-being, as well as obstructions to kind of the order of things, as this idea of uh, a cosmopolitanism, a um, that we are all part of a a larger tribe, the tribe of you know rational agents. Yeah, and that's that, that we are. We should be working together to benefit us all. Yeah, I think that's 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 a key Stoic idea. Epictetus uses the metaphor of like bodily parts as well, and talks about you know if a foot were to say, "I don't want to go in the mud. I want to be you know beautiful like the eye." It's not a very good foot at all, you know. No, uh, the, the eye's got a totally <laughs> different function, and so you know we we've all got our parts to play, and you know we play those parts better when we're not trying to make our own position be the, the one that matters the most um, when we're actually working in cooperation with other people. Imagine if the foot was like, I don't want this blood coming from all these other parts of the, the body. You know, I don't know where that stuff has been. Those, the, you know, those dirty fingers and, you know, <laughs> organs. Look at, you know, look at how gross they are inside. I, I, I just want my, the blood that I've got here. I mean, it wouldn't last as a foot very long, would it? <laughs> so. No. And it, um, the kind of hammers home the idea that uh, not only like 
each part has a function that is necessary to work together that um that we should not be i guess uh looking down on those people just because of the positions that they're holding that they we all, all have a, a yeah. place to play to, uh, for the betterment of us all and that there there shouldn't be any real uh derision for any person that has a place in society that is beneficial to society yeah that's that's a really good way of putting it um I mean, I, I can't think of any classic Stoic passage that comes to mind about that, except where Epictetus talks about um, slaves. And he was a slave himself, and he says that it's... Well, actually, Seneca talks about, about slaves in a similar light as well. He says, we have to look at these as human beings, which is kind of a radical way to talk at the time. And each one of them is, in a certain way, just as good as us, because they've got this... He talks, Epictetus speaks in very religious terms. They got this little piece of God inside of them, the rational part. Um, but a with, shard of the divine? Or a yeah, I mean, the with, without going into God talk, I think we could mm-hmm. say everyone, by virtue of being a human being, participates in this this you know basic human nature of rationality. And it's not just like cold calculating you know, turn your emotions off rationality. Properly oriented and developed emotions are part of human rationality as well, you know. And so there, I guess there is something like that. But what you said is it goes beyond that a little bit, I, I'd say. Maybe that's just my modern reading of it. So that's actually, that's a good, you know, we said we weren't going to talk about the difference between ancient and modern stoicism, but it kind of raises that question do we need to reinterpret this stuff today? Um, I, I'd say yes. I, I think you probably would say yes too, right? Yeah, and especially because we have so little of the original texts. If, whenever someone says like this is exactly it, and when we don't even have some of the, like the really foundational like Zeno's Republic yeah. or like you know we don't have anything the guy wrote, unfortunately. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We. None of the, the first couple founders we have any of their books, you know, like uh, Xenochrysippus or Cleanthes, yeah. the first three heads of the Stoa. Like all we got are like quotes from other in other people's books, yeah, little fragments. Sometimes a paragraph of of Chrysippus and Galen, who is a, a medical guy, but he's always quoting Chrysippus to say how wrong Chrysippus is. What? So. <laughs> <laughs> Was that when he was talking about the the heart being the, the center of rationality? Oh yeah, you know there was a big. This is, this is a bit of a side <laughs> note, right? There there was a big discussion in in ancient times about whether it was the brain or whether it was the heart, and a lot of ancient philosophers held out for it being the heart. As a matter of fact, they seem to some of them seem to have imagined the brain was almost like a cooling system or something. Um, now Plato it's just did, a radiator. Yeah, I mean it kind of looks like. I mean. Uh, who, who knows? But do they have radiators? Too? I don't think so. But I, I, I don't know where they got that idea. But um, they, you know, they thought of the heart as being the center of the human being. Plato didn't buy into that because the rational part for him is in the head, and then like the the irrational parts are below the neck. But I think a lot of the other philosophers identified it with the heart. Right. So. So. But yeah, so so going back to we this reinterpretation business, right? Um, why do we have to reinterpret the stuff that we have? Um, isn't it good enough 
just to read Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and then just just apply it? Uh, I don't I don't think so because we we live in a, a fundamentally different world than they do. We there are certain um, political and uh, environmental differences um, that are just so absolutely alien to them yeah. that it requires at least some you know uh, fitting into the the modern milieu. So. This is probably something you've thought about quite a bit over the years then. Obviously, some things we want to we wanna sort of say, well, that was of their time and we're not really that interested in it. Like, you know, Epictetus's insistence that men should have beards or else they, they're, they're effeminate or things like that. I think we could probably say, nah. I mean, although you and I both have beards, we can, we can recognize the beardless is still, still <laughs> you know men right and we don't have to stick with the rigid gender roles that they had and there's Uh, and there's other weird you know like things here and there where we read a passage we're like well that doesn't i don't know that we have to buy into that how do we tell what we what we should keep what what is still as true today as it was two thousand years ago so i'm i'm more of an empiricist than I'm a rationalist. Okay. And so um, I, I'm very much in favor of you know study and research and um, and repeatable large uh, sample size studies for some of these things. And if if there is reliable, repeatable, and repeated experimentation that some of these things don't actually hold, then yeah. I'm going to drop them. Those things, you know, uh, it's kind of like the Stokes are really great on a lot of things that are kind of psychologically based because we as a species haven't changed much in the last 2000 years. Okay. But they have a lot of stuff about the cosmos that I do not hold to any at all because it is way outside of what we have been able to experimentally demonstrate. Yeah, and, and I think that some of these things, just given the way that we conceive of the cosmos, they, there's no way they're going to work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, in On the Nature of the Gods, which is you know, the closest thing we have to, to Stoic theology and cosmology, you know, you've got Zeus, who's like this capital G god, and then you've got all these other, let's call them godlets or godlings, mm-hmm. and, and they seem to perform a role similar to what angels were thought to do in you know early uh, christian and, and and muslim stuff and in, in, you know governing the universe and making sure like everything goes the way it's supposed to go but do we do we really have any evidence that there's anything like this in contemporary cosmology no i think we have to like throw all that stuff away um just just as much as we would with you know more theistic conceptions that that just seems to go by the, the wayside as well as the the conflagration Oh, well, we should is, say what that is. Yeah. Go, so go that ahead. is the... <laughs> the ek, the, the ekpurosis is, is how it's called in Greek, right? So, say it again? Ekpurosis. Ekpurosis. Yeah. Uh, and so this is um, the idea that uh, our world is actually our, our entire cosmos, which is all things, um, goes through a, uh, a rebirth and burning 
in giant cycles of you know i don't know how do either hundreds of thousands or millions of years yeah who and, who, who knows <laughs> what comes and, and they, they have a, a conception of matter um that you know everything kind of like goes up into eventually it burns up and then the thing that like flame burns into his reason and so the entire yeah of all all everything the cosmos it's like it's all getting sucked back up into into this like pure fire and then it yeah re becomes new again it gets reborn yeah into a new version of the universe and it happens exactly the same way as fate has predicted because fate is perfectly reasonable and that uh it has defined the exact best way that everything should happen yeah you know there's a passage in in uh epictetus's discourses where i think he's kind of joking around actually because he's he as so often he's talking to an interlocutor and he's saying man your ideas are wrong and let me give you give you an instance to show you how wrong they are and he's talking about it's in the it's in the chapter on solitude and whether solitude is something good or bad for us, right? And and Epictetus tells us something that a lot of other ancient authors have said. Solitude is really easy to bear if you're a good person because you like to be with yourself. If you're a bad person, you don't like to be with yourself. And so solitude then becomes something difficult to bear. And the other thing that can make solitude bad is we feel like we're going to be resourceless, like we're not going to have any friends or we're not going to have what we need to be able to get through things and so he says when the conflagration happens do you think zeus is like crying to himself because all the other gods are gone and everything else is gone no he's fine he's he's cool being by himself until everything starts up again so presumably epictetus thought of you know this this thing is happening or maybe maybe he didn't. Maybe he, he just thought his audience did. Uh, in any case, he refers to it, and he's got this funny line about you know, imagine if like Zeus was like all sad and morose because nothing exists anymore, you know, and and he's sort of like whining. Not much of a god then, is he? <laughs> <laughs> right. And so once again, these are certain things that we have decided that with, from within ancient Stoicism that it could probably be thrown to the dustbin of history. Yeah. I, I like your idea that a lot of the psychological stuff um, still holds. And and some of it does seem to be, you know, more and more borne out by what we're discovering through looking at the brain and how it works and, and um, you know, therapeutic techniques and psychology and what actually is evidence-based, you know, the whole cognitive revolution uh, is it, it aligns very nicely with with stoic conceptions of rationality and emotions so yeah yeah and they, they had lots of time to sit around and talk to each other about the, what they're thinking and how they're experiencing the world and that's been our main way until you know only the last 20 years of you know investigating our our own consciousnesses yeah and i'm going to say something and it'll be a little bit of a rant here i think a lot okay. of people imagine like everybody before the dawn of science in in the early modern period as being these people who just like they didn't do any real experimentation or observation and that's nuts i mean aristotle was was an, an empiricist in this respect he liked cutting animals open and seeing what was in their guts that's why he had alexander who was his patron send back all these these animals from you know the places that that uh, alexander was marching around he had hunters along for that and they were they were similarly doing that with with human beings they would observe things like again aristotle he he you know in in effect he's he's 
Plato, you could say, is founding political science in a certain sense, but Aristotle founded it by actually looking at what each Greek city-state, what its constitution was, and then writing, or at least maybe he didn't necessarily write it, maybe he had some of his students write it, writing out these treatises and establishing like a research program and, and allowing him to make you know interesting generalizations. And the Stoics did exactly the same thing. They, they were not just like coming up with a bunch of ideas and then saying, all right, how can we impose these on everybody and you know make, make them fit? No, they, they'd look at how people behave and they, they saw what worked and what didn't work in terms of... Uh, moving people away from destructive habits and towards, you know, healthier and more productive habits. Uh, and eventually towards, you know, what they called eudaimonia that we now call like happiness or fulfillment or, you know, being okay. Um, yeah. And that was like the major question at the time. Like that's at least a major philosophical question in ancient Greece, especially in Athens. We have the Stoics, we have the Cynics, we have the uh, Epicureans, we have, you know, to a certain extent, the uh, the Lyceum and the Aristotelians, mm-hmm. um, all asking what makes a good life, and so there was a lot of like investigation into that particular question. You know, so let's come back to the pro-social thing again. Mm-hmm. Um, can you have a good life in isolation, or let's even go further than that? being indifferent to or being in conflict with with other people some people thrive on drama right is is that a, is that a good life i don't believe that thriving on drama is a good life <laughs> uh, <laughs> not i guess specifically from a stoic point of view um then your uh the basis of your happiness uh is an external and the stoics say that your, your basis for a good life or your own happiness should be from within yeah. And so I guess the Stoic would say that you could have a good life by yourself. Um, but so, it might yeah. might be preferable to be with other people just because we are a social creature. Yeah. For example, there were a lot of um, famous Stoics who wound up getting exiled, right? Uh, uh, Musonius Rufus got exiled twice, I think. Um, Seneca was Seneca, it? yeah, um, yep. and also Seneca had to write letters of consolation to other people who got exiled as well, right? Uh, and then it, he was told to uh, commit suicide. <clears throat> true, yeah, and and Cicero had to go into exile. Not exactly a Stoic, but he followed the Stoics in a lot of things. Um, so you know, the idea is you should be able to handle being on your own, but. There's more to life than than just you know withdrawing to some barren rock and living an ascetic life you know deprived of other people. So what what's the other side of that? What's what's involved with this pro-social part? Um, this I guess it could bring up uh, okiosis, which is a idea of um, appropriating the um, not the desires but the uh, affection well-being yeah of of others into your own as much as you can and so um it's described as a, a number of concentric circles by i believe Heracles. yeah uh, describes it this way and uh where you are the center and then your next circle is like your parents and maybe your closest siblings and then after that is your extended family after that is your neighborhood after that is your 
your city, their nation, and then the world, and then maybe the cosmos or like the the realm of all rational creatures. Yeah. And the idea of okiosis is to try to, um, you know, you might not succeed, but try to extend the uh, thinking about the consequences of your actions to the same extent that you would uh, think about the consequences of your, of your actions and how they would affect those people closest to you. And so you're trying to con- contract these circles down to you. Yeah, you could say that if there if there are emotions associated with oikiosis, it's love or affection, right? And concern or care. Um, you know, Aristotle, who's not a Stoic, talks about friendship as... If you, if you want a genuine friendship, it has to involve wishing well to the other for their own sake, not for the sake of what you're getting out of them, not because they're an important person who's going to save the universe, but just because they, they matter, you know. And that's why he says, like, you can't be friends with salt, for example, because salt, you, you know, you can, you can eat it as much as you like and really like it, but you don't care about it for its own sake the way you can a person. And the Stoics um, acknowledged this emotion that in Greek is called philostorgia, and it gets translated as familial affection, but it really can pertain to anybody who we're, we're attached to. Um, it's translated sometimes as fondness. And so oikiosis would be an extension of that deliberately from the people who we already feel that about to people who we don't already feel that about, and then eventually with time can come to feel that way. Um, and and we, we did a show about this a while back. I don't remember exactly what episode it was, but you talked about Buddhist meta meditation as being similar to this with the concentric circles. And then if I remember right, yeah, go ahead. Um, Peter Sellers, his book, uh, the expanding circle, which is very similar, but expanding uh, effective altruism. Uh, mm-hmm. And utilitarianism tied in with that. So this is kind of a, a cross-cultural concept, isn't it? It is. Uh, and one of those things that made me like look into Buddhism just to see like what are the other things that might be... Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Oh, yeah, a, a little bit. You know, I'm not super-versed, but I've read a couple books now. And so, so that was the thing that got you interested in that, that um, concentric that... circles of meta-meditation. Um, that and I, I came upon um, a, a book that looked at Stoic, or sorry, Buddhism through a, um, a scientific lens. And it says, like, basically, we've done some uh, uh, brain scan studies. Do you remember the um, name? Yeah, it's called Why Buddhism is True. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, uh, I don't know where I put it. It's around here someplace. Um. But yeah, I, I thought it was a, a really interesting way of looking at that and kind of, you know, breaking the, the wheat from the chaff uh, and getting to things that I can say, oh, yeah, there is um, some, you know, good scientific backing on these ideas. Yeah, it's and from, you know, I would say from a, from a typical Stoic perspective, um, actually, Lawrence Becker talks about this in A New Stoicism and talking about... Um, how to interpret the Stoics' insistence on living in accordance with nature. And Becker says, that's a terrible phrase. It's too bad that the Stoics are stuck with it because it's so it could mean so many different things. And then he decides that part of it means um, living in accordance with the facts or living in accordance with the best knowledge that we have about the cosmos, our bodies, 
um, our psychology, you know, that, that any, any real, as he calls it, a new stoicism, any real stoicism would have to be adaptable. So if we find out that, I don't know, some key stoic practice is actually harmful, um, according to Becker, we should abandon it. So I feel like this is a really good segue into three disciplines, and specifically the discipline of ascent, unless there's something you really needed to talk about. I thought you were going to talk about the case that we'll we'll bring up in a couple minutes, because that's a person who... Yeah. Cl- clearly misunderstood something about stoicism, <laughs> but um, yeah, let's talk about the three disciplines and then let's t- let's talk about that that interesting uh, situation. So specifically, um, so the three uh, Stoic disciplines, as put forward, I believe, by Epictetus, right? Right. Um, are desire, action, and ascent, and they are three kind of categories of looking and interacting with the world that help uh, that support each other kind of like a tripod um, and that you kind of have to have all three of them in the stoic sense of these for kind of the whole philosophy to work well. Yeah. And, and ascent is all about being aware of the world and investigating it as best you can. You know, there are, you know, they knew about optical illusions even back then. And so they knew that like you look out and like maybe the tree kind of looks weird, like it's, bent but then you like walk around it and you realize it's just like a weird way it was growing it's not actually bent or it's just like the the bark looked weird and so it's like you know, you, yeah you see all these things and you you have these first impressions but you need to reserve um just assenting to these things just because you see them um Otherwise, you're going to you know, find yourself in a world of hurt because there are lots of things that we interact with the world where our first impressions are absolutely incorrect. <laughs> and our second and thirds, too. Right. Yeah. And so I think um, he's like, what was the, the, the idea of the hand? Like, oh, that's is, coming from is, Zeno. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is like uh, the impression. This yeah. is like uh, knowing and this is understanding. Something, Something along, along those, those lines. lines, yeah. And ascent, ascent enters in there. And this actually, by the way, this this um, treatment of so, like the Stoics would say that it, it, you you've got like these impressions that come in, and then there's a moment where we decide whether we're going to give in to them or not, whether we're going to like withdraw a little bit from them and then sort of assess them or test them or you know before we 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 entertain them or we can assent to them automatically and then afterwards there's the consequences of doing that this made its way into uh, a lot of um, non-stoic thought within uh, the middle ages so you see this same pattern being worked out why because the medieval monks read seneca and cicero because they 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 copied them you know, yeah. they they like those those pagan authors, and uh, so Stoicism found its way into the psychology of the Middle Ages as well. And then this is also where we get the uh, what Serenity Prayer from. Yeah, I suppose uh, infusion uh, of, of Stoic thought into Christianity. You know, another thing. This is this is a, a bit of a side note. Another thing that made its way in through the monastic culture was um, uh, some of the ascetic practices. 
you know, we're, we're just like taking wholesale out of stoic ideas and then just, you know, the, these monks are like, well, this stuff works. Let's use it. You know? <laughs> we're not going to just reject it because it, it's not coming straight out of the Bible. They were, they were way more judicious when it came to that. They realized you had to synthesize uh, things that, that, that you could, you could use. Um, yeah, there's even traditions of uh, meditation in some uh, ancient uh, monastic traditions yep. that got weeded out as not being Christian at some point in time. Yeah, it's, I mean, it depends. It, it really depends on like who's in charge of determining what counts, you know. And some of that had to do with religious orders um, kind of sticking it to each other. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the older religious orders oh. sometimes are at a disadvantage compared to the younger ones, you know. But this is where this is where I'm li- liable as somebody who's a, like a medievalist to get into some some, you know, not only get into the weeds but also get into stuff where I've got some real strong opinions cuz cuz I'm a big so, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the Benedictines against the the Dominicans and Franciscans and later Jesuits, but that's a whole different side note. <laughs> so maybe we should talk about the discipline of desire, what you should be desiring in this moment. What I should be? Um, well, or like, <laughs> under a Stoic idea of desire. I'm just trying to get. Back yeah, to well, I mean the, the the Stoic idea, the Stoic discipline of desire is what's really liberating about it. I think a lot of people think that I just desire what I desire, and it also includes aversions. I'm averse to what I'm averse to, and that's just the way I'm made. And the Stoics say. No, you're really malleable, you know, by directing your attention, by using uh, things to remind yourself of what the consequences are. You can change how you desire things. You can't, of course, like flip a switch or take a pill or put a chip in your head and automatically desire the right things. But you can you, you can wean your well, yeah, we'll, <laughs> we'll see about that. You can wean yourself away from bad things and, and towards towards better things. Um, and this is what like. We were talking about just earlier about uh, habits and creating these mm. habits by doing them over and over. Right. That uh, we you instill certain actions that then become second nature. You know, and Epictetus talks. Uh, I've been mentioning Epictetus a lot tonight, but he is my favorite Stoic, so that's probably <laughs> why. Um, as a matter of fact, let me let, before I, I say what Epictetus is going to say. Who is your favorite Stoic? Do you have one? Um. I guess it's Marcus Aurelius. I was I was uh, thinking it probably was. Like I guess as a a pure like prose, I love Marcus Aurelius. Okay. Um, and yeah, Epictetus is a little bit more dry. Uh, although he has some really like gut busters every I know. once in a while, and and I think <laughs> because he's so dry a lot of the other times, it, it kind of like amplifies their like oh he's making a joke here like real hardcore. Yeah. Um, so why, then, let me ask, really why not, why not do, Seneca? Uh, Seneca's next. Uh, okay. Because, just because he's, I, I love the, the letters and it's like just this correspondence that goes on forever. And it's kind of like, it's uh, at least the letters to Lucilius are, are almost like a, a course in stoicism. Yeah. I find that to be really enjoyable to read. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. I think that's part of why they were preserved in the form that they were, because they were held to be um, like almost covering every every topic you could think of. The, the other thing that's really cool about those letters, I'll say, too, is that we know <clears throat> I, I mentioned like, you know, Chrysippus, we, we know about him in part because Galen, you know, talked about him in order to 
to go against him. We also know about Chrysippus from what um, Epictetus and, and then even more Seneca have to say. There's passages where he'll quote Chrysippus or other authors like Posidonius, uh, you know, a middle Stoic. Um, sometimes we get passages, but we also get a lot of summaries where he'll say, well, you know, as we all know, Posidonius taught this. And, and Seneca is like the only place where we've got anyone telling us. So we're like, well, we didn't all know, but thank goodness you wrote it down. <laughs> you know? So, well, with the Epictetus, so the, the habit thing, right? I was just going to yeah. say Epictetus tells us that when we're in a tempting situation, we should remind ourselves we're not just deciding for right now. We're deciding... Um, whether to strengthen or weaken a habit. And I think that's a really helpful thing to, I know for me it's very helpful to keep that in mind when I'm tempted to justify what I'm doing. So speaking of justification, I've mentioned a couple times this interesting case of a guy, Samuel Jackson, not the actor, but a guy who worked for Little, uh, which is a German um, firm that they find in, in uh, uh, they're all across um, uh, Europe. It's and a grocery store, right? Yeah, and in this case, it was a guy who was apparently in communications and said some bad things about his coworkers, um, and then was told to apologize, made a bad apology, got fired, and then claimed that he did it because of stoicism. So uh, this is actually just quoting from Personnel Today, uh, an article about this. Um, he argued that his philosophical beliefs formulated by Zeno of Kittium uh, and taught in ancient Athens meant he must adhere to the truth without fear of offending other people. Now, Stoicism does say that we should adhere to the truth. It doesn't say that, well, we shouldn't fear offending other people, but we also shouldn't offend other people. We shouldn't deliberately go out of our way to say things, as he did, that are racist, and then, um, you know, would certainly affect his co-workers, and then uh, not apologize properly for it. And so it's interesting because the judge actually said that um, Stoicism uh, counts as a philosophy. Now, it's not like here in the United States where it's, it would have to be like covered under the First Amendment and, and religion. In this case, in Britain, a, a philosophy, like say veganism, can be a sufficient reason why you're treating people differently. The funny thing about this is the guy's getting Stoicism wrong and the judge didn't seem to, to catch that, right? Um, and they even, they even end up uh, like quoting the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which I think is actually getting Stoicism wrong too. Um, so it's, it's unfortunate because the, what this guy is doing is definitely not Stoicism. You know, saying racist remarks about about coworkers not not a stoic thing to do. Doubling it's, down it's on not it. Pro social. Yeah, definitely. I mean, <laughs> it, and there's no like, there's no like. Well, why did you do this? Why why would you say this sort of thing? He clearly thinks that the racist remark is is a true remark. And, so and, and he's yeah, and he's he's making a a uh, a, a statement that has facticity. He's, yeah, he's saying. Um, that a, a certain group is greasy, um, and that that is a, a fact, a, a, a statement. Well, it's not a fact. That, uh, sorry, 
that is a statement that has the ability to be proven true or false, and it is demonstrably false. Yeah. And so he is unwise to be uh, choosing to stick to his guns on this. Yeah, and any good Stoic would, when confronted by other people saying, wow, you're a jerk, would like look at themselves and say, am I a jerk? What did, you know, let me think about this behavior on my part. What are my motivations for saying these things that are offensive? I think this is something that's kind of interesting because this is something really important to personal development. It requires us to have a sense of humility, being willing to acknowledge when we've got something wrong. And Marcus Aurelius is somebody who says, hey, if I'm wrong about something, let me know so I can fix it. This guy is is like the opposite of that, right? Right. He's, he's planted his leg in the ground for a really poor place and decided <laughs> that he's going to defend that hill come, you know, heck or high water. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, And we talk about a hill to die on. Um, it's not actually stoic to do that. The, what would make a hill worth dying on is that it's, it's like, you know, it embodies something of high value, like you're protecting people or, um, you're actually doing your duty to, to, um, your country or something along those lines. Um, So for example, if you're, you know, uh, when you join the the government or the armed services in this country, you are uh, sworn to protect and defend the Constitution. And so right. There is a, a duty to you know potentially do things that would be against the wishes of your like commanding officers if it conflicts with this thing that you have sworn to do. That's true. Yeah, and and actually. All I can remember, you know, I was in the army and I I remember that we were told we're not supposed to obey unlawful orders, you know, that and there was discussion about, you know, well, what is a lawful order? What's an unlawful order? Most of the orders that you get are are lawful. But if they tell you like, hey, we're going to like pick some guy at random and beat the the tar out of him, um, that's an unlawful order. I mean, it, you, you could have some some cases where it could somehow be construed to be the right thing. I mean, that's what A Few Good Men was about, that, that whole movie, right? Um, but you, you have to do some reasoning there. And so, yeah, this is a great case of somebody who's using Stoicism as, as you put it, a shield um, in order to cover up bad actions on, on his part that, that a Stoic, a genuine Stoic, would, would be condemning. Yeah. And also... His epistemology is really bad, or his the way that he knows <laughs> how things, the way that you know right, things. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so from the Stoics' perspective, that would, they they called that part logic, right? And that's where the desire yes. of, of assent also came in, or the discipline of assent. Um, <laughs> you studied how to tell true statements from false statements, how to tell good inferences from bad inferences. And, you know, any sort of sweeping stereotype, I mean, there, there are some cases where a few stereotypes might actually be correct, but we'd have to be really, really careful to figure out which of those they are. And, and I think in this day and age, we should probably assume that any sweeping statement about an entire class of people is probably going to be false. Right. right. There's just there's too many people and people are way too varied to have any of those statements really, you know, besides like we're all human, thus we'll die. Yeah. <laughs> so like... um, do we want to get into the, the question? We're going to have to run through that in the practice pretty quickly. Or do we just uh, want to jump right to the practice? I did have somebody who, think... who, who, te- who uh, messaged me on Twitter today with an interesting 
stoic. Let's do the question quick. Okay. So uh, somebody messaged me and he said, I was wondering how a stoic outlook would reflect on mental health conditions vis-a-vis how we treat them in terms of medication. I understand that none of this pharmaceutical advancement was present at the height of stoic philosophy, but just how, out of principle, how might we think about this? I was thinking in terms of whether taking mind-altering medication would be viewed as unvirtuous, contradicting a person's responsibility to take a hold of their personal pain. And so, you know, this is a great example of what you were talking about earlier where um, you know a modern interpretation of stoicism is going to differ from an ancient interpretation but even then if if they like if epictetus um, was you know knew that somebody had some sort of chemical imbalance in their brain and probably needed something to even them out to some degree i don't think he would have been against it i don't think he would totally agree tough it out you know (laughs) like I, i look at uh stoicism as the things that help us you know, once our brains are in uh, like a fairly neurotypical, oh. at least chemical basis, you know, that you know, we, yeah. we have these, uh, I guess, uh, what did uh, Freud call them, our neuroses or whatever, you know, these, these ways yeah, now, of thinking about the world that are purely just, you know, the patterns that we have developed and not a, a fundamentally medical problem with our brain as an organ. Yeah, now we use the word disorder, um, but it, you're you're right, and and some things you know are going to be caused by organic issues, and some will be caused by trauma that might require psychotherapy that's not going to be helped just by doing stoic exercises, you know, um, and and some things can be addressed by um, by philosophical practices, but we have to be able to discern between those those things. And I, I kind of think that a combination can often be quite helpful. I, I look at a lot of um, psychiatric medicine as essentially giving people crutches. You know, it's, it's great when you get a crutch, but the crutch by itself doesn't heal your leg. It helps you get around, so it helps you have the mobility that you need, but you're going to have to do some some physical therapy as well. And the physical therapy is doing either the psychotherapy or the stoic uh, work, right? So if, if all you do is take, you know, let's say you're depressed, right, um, and you just take a bunch of antidepressants, well, that's nice. It'll keep even, It'll keep you even for a while, but you might actually want to look at why you're depressed, what other things besides just, you know, brain states. Um, are are involved in that. Like, you know, if you find out that like every relationship that you had um, crashed and burned and, and look at the fact that, you know, you're the only constant in that and then you're like, oh, I better look at how I interact with people. <laughs> Maybe stoicism can actually help with that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, practice? Yeah, why don't you lead us through, through this So one? our practice this week is that of the mistaken inference and put forward this way you know someone comes up to you and says i make more money than you therefore i am better than you and you can retort well the horse runs faster than you therefore is the horse better than you this is this question of like what is the actual good here um if you kind of desire money to be a good uh but does that just because you desire to be good does it actually make it a good yeah so we're pretty much out of time now. So do we want to lead out on a final thought? Or? We'll lead out with the words of Epictetus. People are upset not by things, but their judgments about things. <laughs> <laughs>